You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both senior writers in MMA for The Athletic, and we meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, it's been a while. It's been a while since I saw you. Chad, ask me where I'm going. Where are you going? To the dance, motherfucker. I'm going to the dance. Uh, Explain yourself. What does that mean? Last night, big night in local sports. I'm sure you heard about it on all the sports talk radio. Semifinals of the rec league hockey playoffs. My team, the Silver Slipper, the goddamn Slip, the boys in black and girls, we went out there, 3-2 victory over the dreaded, the hated, the detested green hanger, punched our ticket to the championship, Chad. Now, we go into a best-of-three championship series against Tear It Up LLC. Woo! I'm fired up, Chad. I don't mind telling you. Would you say that it's accurate that the Silver Slipper is a Cinderella story? We have been called a team of destiny. I think, you know, honestly, we're just a bunch of hardworking blue-collar hockey players just bringing our lunch pails and our hard hats, punching in, putting in the work, grinding out there on the ice. And at the end of the day, good Lord willing, we hope good things will happen for us. You know, right now we're just taking it one game at a time. We got to go in there. We got to face a tough, tear it up team that was the number one seed heading into the playoffs. We were the number two seed. So, you know, still respected by the odds makers. Are we going to be the underdogs? Probably. Yeah. Do we give a shit? Not at all, Chad. So we're going to take it to them. So this is where the damn championship, Chad. This is where we find out if the slipper fits. You know, you can work on that one. I'm going to live, I'm going to give you some time with all the slipper puns that you want to make. You can save it up because you're going to need it when the championships roll around. We're coming for that cup. See, now I feel like a fool because now you do. Uh when you said you were going to the dance and you were so excited about it, going to the dance. I actually got a little excited myself. I thought maybe you might have some actual news here to talk about on the podcast, and then as soon as you open your mouth, I realize this falling feeling in my chest, like, oh, he's just talking about hockey. How dare you? How dare you sit there and act like this isn't the biggest news to come across this very desk in years? Hey, man, news flies across this desk every day. You got to I'm, come I strong. I shouldn't even be touched. Matter of fact, wanna... where's my hand sanitizer? I brought this, coming into this this hive of germs that you have been incubating here low these many weeks. I didn't come over here empty-handed. I didn't come over here thinking that I'm just going to touch surfaces in your home and not be prepared. There we go. All sanitized. Everyone's on the up and up, I think. Thanks for asking. (laughs) How are you feeling? I'm doing good. I I haven't heard you cough once. Well, I mean, we're on the air. I try to get my coughs out. Is you're a professional? Well, we're not recording the podcast. Okay. So So we'll see how that goes over this hour. Everybody, don't forget, you can run out and get your co-main event podcast logo t-shirts right now over at cottonbureau.com. We got those for sale. We also got cowboy astronaut cigarettes t-shirts for sale. And we got Dundasso t-shirts for sale. Those are available all the time, on demand, whenever you want them. 
Just go over to cottonbureau.com today and pick up some CME merchandise. We got music again this week from longtime listener and friend of the show, Rass Jarborg. If you like what you hear from him on the episode, you can check out more over at soundcloud.com slash S-T-H-L-M Rass. That's Stockholm Rass, our guy. Stockholm Rass. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, a week or two after seriously discussing pulling the plug on 125-pound men, a couple of 115-pound women went out and had what's being hailed as one of the greatest fights in UFC history. So that's something to think about. And in round number two, man, I wish Yoel Romero had saved some of that backflipping energy for the actual fight. And in round number three, the UFC heads to Brazil on Saturday with some CME favorites on the card, I might add. Meanwhile, Bellator hits up Uncasville with the title on the line as part of the Featherweight Grand Prix Tournament and Josh Barnett noticeably absent. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Okay, here's the thing about listener mail. We got a lot of listener mail. Yeah, we did. This week. A lot of good listener mail, uh, which is usually the sign of a popular and trending UFC event. I think that our metrics over the years bear that theory out. I mean, when there's... But also, though, the thing that happens, I notice, when we have a... a when, when weird shit happens, it feels like the the... The typing fingers of the CME populace just light up. They get itchy. Yeah. And then that guarantees. Like, if it's just a big event, okay, sure, we'll get some listener mail. Big event with some weird shit, just a flood of listener mail. Yeah. So here's what we're going to do this week. We have some uh, listener mail that we are going to go ahead and do here in the the traditional listener mail segment. And then we've also got some questions that we are going to sprinkle into rounds one and two to help guide our discussions of uh, Zhang Wiley against Joanna Yejcik and then Yoel Romero against Israel Adesanya. But here we are with the listener mail portion of the show. This first piece of listener mail comes to us from Lotus from Texas, who writes, I'm not sure how you could have missed it, but your boy, Mr. Getting Off the Bus World Champion, Paulo Costa, got thick, like Roy <laughs> Nelson diet thick. Now, the real question is about Paulo Costa having his friend call Dana and pretend to be a doctor. I just felt the need to hear Chad pronounce thick. <laughs> well, wish granted. What do you make of Costa having his friend call, and can you ever remember anything like this before in this sport? Also, since we are on that note, can you imagine your boy Snacks Costa over here? <laughs> Actually making 185 pounds. Now, we talked about this a little bit on Friday in the Power Hour, but I did want to bring up Paulo Costa. Snacks Costa. Snacks Costa. (laughs) He was looking uh, a little different. Look at the little far out of competition shape. And wearing the glasses. Did you see any of the shots of him when he was wearing... I don't know if if he actually has prescription glasses or if he was just like rocking some some, uh, uh, fashion glasses, but... There is never a moment where Paulo Casa doesn't look like the evil boyfriend in a 1980s rom-com. You know what I mean? Like, yes, he's yeah. the guy that we're supposed to root for the hero to steal the girl yeah. away from. There's literally kicking sand in people's faces is how you picture him. Plus, uh, I don't know. I saw him. He's over there. He's in a shirt that uh, my my father would call loud. A bit of a loud shirt. Uh, and it looked like he borrowed it from The Rock. Circa like 1994. <laughs> he also, was he wearing lipstick? Like he looked like he had just really, he had gotten out, was stepping out and was going to like standing in front of the hotel bathroom mirror being like, well, I'm going to be on TV. 
so I need to act accordingly tonight. Probably the dry desert air over there in Las Vegas necessitated some chapstick for Paulo Costa. Did the dry desert air also make him puffier than normal? Because I know the guy's been injured and everything. Yeah, this man has been on the shelf. Let's cut him a little bit of slack. He, he did not. He wasn't really looking like middleweight Paulo Costa, though. That was looking more like light heavyweight Paulo Costa. Well, and that brings up an interesting question here asked by Lotus from Texas. It appears now that Israel Adesanya, who has gotten past Yoel Romero, as we will talk about coming up in round two on today's show, will probably face Paulo Costa next. I don't know that we can go on the record right now saying that we have any concerns about Paulo Costa missing weight. I don't know that that would necessarily be fair in this moment, especially since... Man, I feel a little uh, way-in hungover right now after Davis yeah. and Figueredo and then having to wait on pins and needles until Yoel Romero rolled in at the last possible minute and you made just, the weight. You would like to have uh, maybe a couple weeks where you don't think about what professional fighters weigh in their underwear? I'm not going to preemptively get nervous about Paulo Costa before we even get that fight on the books. However, number one, like... What's your level of excitement now for Costa versus Adesanya? And number two, I don't know if we're going to talk about this in round number two, but like, did anything that you saw against Yoel Romero this weekend from Israel Adesanya make you feel nervous about how he's going to respond to fighting these like big powerhouse behemoths at 185 that he's going to have to face as champion? Well, I don't, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk more about this in round one, but that was such a weird fight. I don't know if I would even want to game out what it says about Israel Adesanya versus anybody other than yeah. Yoel Romero. However, it did make me feel, well, for one thing, at the end of it, when we see Paulo Costa, he's sitting cage side, he's, he's got his loud shirt on, and he's, he's clearly hyped up in the moment. I was, it was one of the few instances where I was like, let him in the cage. Yeah. Let him in the cage, to, even if he's going to cause a big scene, just so we can say that something happened here in this right. main event. It was like part of the, the thud that UFC 248 ended with. That not only do you get kind of a stinker of a main event, but like Adesanya goes over to the side of the cage, like trying to gin up some business here with Paulo Costa and the guy has already been escorted out. So like not only did we get kind of a, a bad main event, but you look at the clock, it's almost two o'clock in the morning on the East Coast and uh, we don't even get to face off with Paulo Costa because yeah. he already bounced. Yeah, well, I mean, even if. He's in there like throwing around athletic commission guys or something. At least then we'll feel like we got our money's worth in violence, whatever. But also, I was thinking about it afterwards and I was like, maybe Paulo Costa is the perfect antidote to this situation. Like the perfect thing to follow it up with because say whatever else you want to say about Paulo Costa. I will join you in saying much of it. However, he's going to make some shit happen in there. Even if it's a bad idea, he's going to get in there and he's going to go right at Israel. You yeah. cannot imagine a situation in which Paulo Costa just kind of stands there and waits for you to bring the fight to him. Yeah. That's just not his MO at all, for good and bad. And it seems like that's what you need right now. If I'm Israel Adesanya, I'm like, please, let's hurry up and book that Paulo Costa fight just so we can get this bad taste out of everybody's mouth. Because that one, one way or another, you're going to get some fireworks out of it. If I'm Israel Adesanya, I want to get it booked soon so that... Like, let's see if let's see Paulo Costa rush himself back from this injury. Yeah. Let's see him spend his whole training camp just trying to make the weight. Like that's the kind of stuff that I'd want to be uh, thinking about if I'm Israel Adesanya. Yeah, turn the damn page is what I'd be saying if I was Israel Adesanya. Next question this week comes to us from Eamon Dunphy. 
I believe uh, Irish radio personality, as we found out, or Irish broadcasting personality. Frequent emailer of the podcast. He writes, hello, Rodolfo Vieira. You've got to love a fighter who can get his face broken early and say, oh, I think I need to finish this and then go and do just that. Wow. He's going to be one of my guys now. Can't wait to see him in the cage again. So, Ben, one of the interesting things here about the UFC 248 preliminary card, at least the televised portion of it on ESPN, is that you had back-to-back fights here featuring Rodolfo Vieira and Mark Madsen, a couple of grappling superstars trying to make the transition to mixed martial arts, and uh, you had this middleweight fight up first, Rodolfo Vieira versus uh, Saparbek Safarov, where uh, this thing couldn't have been a contrast of body styles anymore. You had Vieira over there looking like he and Paulo Costa work out at the same gym, like they both know where the weights are kept. And then you had uh, Safarov on the other side of the cage, basically looking like every dad at the YMCA in the locker room with his shirt off, hairline and all. But as it gets started, Safarov, he's threatening to uh, break Vieira's whole shit here, man. First punch of the fight, uh, swolled up his left eye, almost closed uh, Vieira immediately goes takedown crazy, gets him on the mat, and from there, obviously, it's academic as the multi-time world Brazilian jiu-jitsu champion finishes this thing, his second straight arm triangle choke victory in the UFC, two minutes and 58 seconds into the first round. What's your take here? I know you're the uh, resident BJJ nerd of the CME. And you know I love a good arm triangle choke. That's one of my favorites. Yeah. It's one of my favorites, it's also, especially it's a great... No gi submission and great for MMA because it doesn't require you to sacrifice much position to go for it. It doesn't require you to burn your arms out really trying to finish the choke. You can put it on there and maintain top position, control somebody, and just kind of see if it works. And if it doesn't work, you can let it go and you're still in a pretty dominant position. It's a great submission for him, and especially it's a pleasure watching somebody like uh, Rodolfo Vieira put it on because once he gets on top of you, whenever you get like a high-level jiu-jitsu guy and he starts expanding the space that exists between your elbows and your hips, you should be thinking, uh-oh, because nothing good is going to happen then. And he scoops that thing out, latches it in, and then you know there's just there's nowhere you're going to go from there. That's the kind of shit that I love to see, man. And especially if you can do that after nearly getting your whole shit broke. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. I'm into it. Uh, he's 7-0 and now, 2-0 and in the UFC. Definitely looks like somebody at 185 pounds to keep your eye on. Then you had at lightweight, the Danish silver medalist in Greco-Roman wrestling, Mark Madsen. We didn't... Uh, um, Mark O. Madsen. Yeah, right. Mark if you please. O. Madsen, which... Uh, is that what we're doing now? Daniel Cormier appeared to think that that was the guy's last name. Like he was he kept Irish, calling him like O. Madsen. Mark O. Madsen? And the man's full name is Mark... Overguard Madsen. Overguard being his middle name. So, oh, Madsen is not this man's last name. Right. But then we, I don't know why we started suddenly, like now he gets to be the one fighter where we use his middle initial, like he's a, as, as I wrote in my mailbag, like he's like a visiting poet. Yeah. We just throw the middle initial in there to make you sound somewhat more literary. I mean, Mark Madsen is fine with me. It's a little bit of a generic name. Maybe we could think of a, of a nickname it's for the guy. has got alliteration going. Speaking of generic, Mark Madsen's actual nickname, the Olympian. Okay. I mean, accurate. Right? Accurate doesn't really do a lot for me above and beyond that. I mean, come on. It's, 
If it were 1980s pro wrestling, you'd be into that. Well, yeah, if he had a whole Olympian gimmick, but he's not really doing that. No, out here, but he does seem like a super nice guy. He does seem, yeah, pretty, pretty like an amazingly nice guy. He also improves to two and zero in the UFC, but not without some adversity here against Austin Thud Hubbard, who, by the way, as we talked about on Friday, was the guy who had to get three emergency surgeries for compartment syndrome in the wake of his first UFC win because he got kicked in the leg so damn much. He bled inside his body, and it caused some physical swelling damage. Had to have surgery. Still not ready to believe in compartment syndrome. Still sounds fake. Yeah, it's a it's a hoax by the liberal media yep. to distract you from what's going on. Dra- distract friend. me from the deep state. Now, this uh, Mark Madsen win came with some worries, I think, for me. Because you can see the guy gets uh, Austin Hubbard some frequent flyer miles there in the first round. Beautiful kind of overhead suplex there. But at the same time, as Daniel Cormier would say, a lot of big movements, a lot of big explosive (laughs) movements starts to wear down there in the second and third round. If this thing was done by Stockton rules and we were just going to keep going into infinity or until someone won, you got to like Austin Hubbard here. Yeah. I'm kind of wondering what we're really doing with Mark, Mark O. Madsen because he's 35. Yeah. And doesn't have a ton of fights. I understand, you know, we're kind of trying to walk the line between treating him like somebody who came to this sport with a really good pedigree and therefore should be fast-tracked to something and dealing with him as a guy who, in terms of actual pro MMA competition, still kind of in the novice category. Yeah, he's definitely looking one-dimensional out there. And it's also like not facing the cream of the crop at lightweight, a a division which has a ton of good fights. Like. You can go up 20 places in the rankings and you're still in the middle of the pack pretty much. So what are we doing, I guess is my question. Like, are we trying to get serious with this and find out what he can do? Or is it like a guy in his mid-30s comes in and wants to compete and make a few, cash a few paychecks, have a good time, and we're just going to let him do that for a while or what? I mean, if you believe what he says in his post-fight interview, it sounds like he really wants to see how far he can go and he wants to face as much adversity as he can, try to, uh, you know, flesh out his MMA skill set and, and, uh, and see what he can do. But I, you know, I think that the, I think that the concerns that you mentioned are well-placed. you got a kind of a guy who's a little bit older in his, in his athletic career coming in here now trying to play catch up, trying to add in that striking, uh, skill set that I think if, if you watched the latter portion of this fight against Austin Hubbard, it doesn't really look like it's there yet. I mean, that said though, we've seen some Olympians come into this sport late in their athletic lifetime before and do very well. So I don't necessarily know that we need to write off Mark Madsen. I just think that uh, I would like to see more from him. I would like to see him. He's going to have to have a a pretty steep learning curve, right? To like put together the striking game that he's going to need to succeed at 155 pounds. But in, in ways sort of like Gregor Gillespie, he has the kind of skill set where he could make an interesting challenger for Habib Nurmagomedov just on paper. But so, I mean, I don't mind having him around, but I just think that, like, this fight proved he's still got a long way to go before we can start thinking about him in that, even in that ballpark. Yeah. If he were to get up against somebody like Habib, then Habib is going to start adding some initials to his name. You know that. You're not going to be the only out guy out here adding your middle initials. Habib A. Nurmagomedov? Yep. I like it. I'm not, I, I, now that I say it. I'm surprised at how much I enjoy it. <laughs> Next question this week comes to us from Kevin Schuler, who writes, Dariush versus Close. 
Early in the first round, Close, Close grabbed the cage twice to defend a takedown. Jason Herzog warned Close not to grab the cage again, but the damage was done. Instead of threatening to take a point, should we put rule breakers in severely compromised positions? I don't know if we go as far as making them give up their back with hooks in, but I'd like to see some real uh, punishment. Also, holy fucking shit, that was a sick finish. Uh, this is old school Dundasso. Yeah. The cage grab. Classic. It's a classic move. It's a classic move because you're always going to get a warning and you might, by pre- preventing a takedown, save your entire fight. Yeah. And yeah, even if they take a point away from you, rarely do you end up in the bad position that you were trying to avoid. And so, I, but I don't know. I think the thing that causes referees to be so reluctant about taking a point or about really stepping in and doing anything other than just saying, hey, stop stop cheating, Yeah, is that they don't want to be seen as somebody who is deciding the outcome of the fight. Like, they they don't want that responsibility. They don't want, they want the fighters to figure it out. They don't want to be the one where, hey, the whole thing hinged on this one referee's decision. So I don't think, even if you gave them the power, and I mean, they do have the power. They could start you in a position. But even if you had it codified in the rules, that like, similar to the, the submission underground uh, overtime rules where it's like, okay, you can choose one of these advantageous positions to start in. I don't know if referees would even want to use that very often because of that same reluctance to be the ones deciding things. I think they'd much rather just be like, hey, knock it off and (laughs) feel like that's good enough. I feel like every time Jakar Close shows up, I've been thinking of a different guy. (laughs) Like, I see the name Jakar Close on the TV or on paper or whatever, and I immediately think, like, okay, who's this Eastern European guy? Is this one of those guys who's been kicking around on the European circuit and has, like, 16 wins? And then he shows up, and I'm like, oh, wait, no, this is the guy from Michigan. <laughs> so that's just my that's just my. You know, everybody has those guys on the UFC roster where you think it's a different guy. Another guy, him. though, Benil Dariush. This is a dude we don't really ever talk about and maybe because he is in that 155 pound division uh where you got to win so many fights in a row and there's so much kind of star power up in the top end but he has a four fight win streak now getting away from uh this 2017 early 2018 situation where he lost uh to Edson Barbosa and Alexander Hernandez and then suffered this draw with Evan Dunham but Dariush is one of these dudes who is just really good and it just like doesn't, for whatever reason, maybe because he's so goddamn nice, he got on the mic after this thing was over and did like a, a nice seminar, like a how to be nice uh, uh, example, right down to where he, who'd he call out for being a good dad? Oh, Robert Whitaker. Like just confused the hell out of the live crowd <laughs> in Vegas because he was like, I'm going to call somebody out. And then he says Robert Whitaker. And then there's this like swell of cheers. And then it just immediately dies off when people realize, oh, wait, like he's just giving this guy a compliment for being a good dad. Yeah, not even close to being in the same no, weight class yeah, or just anything. just entirely different weight classes. But uh, Benil Dariush, he's uh, kind of like a mid-range guy, but like just another one of these people that continues to remind me over and over again how much goddamn talent there is, not only just in that division, but in the company at large. Where because, dudes like Dariush can just be completely forgotten. Yeah, completely forgotten, even though, like, not only, as you said, winning fights, but winning them in impressive fashion. He's got, of this four fights, uh, winning streak he's on, the last three, he's won performance of the night bonuses. One of them submitted Drew Dober, who is uh, doing pretty well himself these days. So clearly, yeah, there's somebody who can do some stuff, and just hard to make any lasting noise right now. 
And shout out, by the way, to both Benil Dariush and Drakkar Close for just going rock'em, sock'em robots yeah. at the end of this thing. There's stinky legs on both sides here. It was like it was like one of those situations where both guys said, fuck it. <laughs> yes. Yes, they did. It's one of my favorite situations. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Nobby Buckles, who writes, shout out to Angela Hill for posting this on Twitter last night. How would Izzy versus Romero have changed with open scoring? Now... Again, like you said earlier, that that was just such a weird damn fight. And we will talk about it at length coming up later in the show. But it's almost like I hesitate to speculate how any change would have changed that particular fight because it seemed like Yoel Romero had a thing he was going to do and he was just going to do it no matter what. But I feel like this, by and large, is a good event to speculate about open scoring because it also would have made things more interesting maybe in the – Zhang Wiley, Joanna Yajacek fight, where if you yeah. knew like how close it was and how awesome it was all the way through, uh, you know, it could have, you know, you don't know what would have happened in that last round. Yeah. See, and it would be interesting to know, especially if in a fight where somebody thinks, oh, I'm winning these rounds for sure. And uh, like, these are the, the ones where I think open scoring would be the most interesting because we've seen these before, especially in like five round title fights where one person clearly thinks, I got to be winning these rounds. My plan is working just like I thought it would or whatever. And if they hear, along with everybody else in the arena, that they are wrong, then they they have to make some kind of adjustment, right? Yeah. And especially, it's not just that they will be hearing that the judges are scoring it against them. They'll also be making the mental calculation, everybody else is hearing it. And everybody else is going to hear that if you don't come out in that fifth round and just go for broke trying to finish it, that you're kind of accepting defeat. Like, and they, like, the fighter will know that the audience knows, and it that will also, infect, like, I would think affect their decision making in it. But it would then, I mean, is it just we don't want to lose the drama of having them stand there and we're wait, we're hearing the scores and we're waiting to hear which way it goes? Is that? Is that one of the things that we're afraid of? Or are we just like, because it's not like any situation where you're like, oh, maybe the winning fighter will just coast. It's not like that doesn't happen anyway. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a big structural change to make to scoring. And obviously MMA scoring comes from the system that they use to score boxing, 10 point must system. And a lot of the, the kind of traditions and, the way that the scoring works in MMA is sort of just a holdover from boxing and boxing people will line up pretty much to tell you that open scoring was a disaster in the instances where they have tried to do it in boxing. But I kind of, I don't know, man, I feel like there would be some hope for it in MMA. I feel like it's one of the things that we need to try out. Obviously Invicta did try it out over this weekend. Uh, I haven't gotten a chance to check out how that went. I don't know if you have at all to get a, a recap on the Invicta event that, did use open scoring over the weekend. But I just think that MMA is such a different animal that you might not have as much coasting or kind of resting on your laurels by the winning fighter in mixed martial arts as you saw in boxing. Not only because, especially in the UFC, I think matchups are prone to be more competitive, uh, but also because the kind of competitive spirit is a little bit different in MMA, if that makes any damn sense. Uh, But I just think like you would see a fire lit under the losing fighter more than you would coasting in a perfect world. Yeah. And, and in boxing, I think it might have just been a situation where, uh, you know, there's so many mismatches. There's so, there's such a, like, more often, more frequently, a bigger discrepancy in the talent level of the two guys who are fighting. Well, and also... That, like, maybe coasting is just more, it's more possible. Well, and also, boxing is, 
the options that you have, if you were losing, somebody else has just been outpointing you all night long, and you're losing in that fashion, the options that you have in order to change that trajectory are fairly limited. Yeah. Especially, it's like, they've just been beating you because they're a better boxer than you are, and they got faster hands and better defense and, and shit like that. It's like, what are you going to do? Hey, we want people to just say, hey, I'm going to go rushing in there, flailing my arms and hope for the best and go out on my shield or whatever. And it's understandable that people are kind of reluctant to do that. But in MMA, you could at least think like, all right, I have I have been standing here waiting for the guy to stop kicking me in my leg and get close enough so that I can punch him in the face. Now I am to learn that the judges do not favor that strategy. And I need, like, I can try for a takedown. I can try to force him into a clinch i can try other avenues toward a victory other than just you know trying to do more of the same thing that hasn't been working no i agree i agree all right last question this week we'll do this one from trevor finch i don't know about you guys but this last event on espn plus was the worst for stream pauses and general view glitches how can espn and the ufc expect to continue to have us pay for pay-per-view when what we pay for is failing multiple times a show I've heard this around, and I noticed it on my own broadcast last night, that it does, usually, uh, up to this point, or up until recently, I've been very uh, complimentary of the ESPN Plus stream, very complimentary of the app itself, except for a couple of uh, minor glitches early on that I think got worked out, but like I have noticed that recently, and I've heard it around on the internet, that it seems like it is pausing more and more, and it did happen to me last night, which doesn't normally happen, so... What's really going on yeah. with the ESPN Plus stream? Well, and how about pairing it with this question from Brandon Murphy? Okay, yeah, this one from Brandon Murphy where he says, What are your off-the-record bud thoughts on streaming fights for free versus paying for the pay-per-view price tag? I've heard some of the kids just type in certain letters on the websites <laughs> and suddenly they're able to watch the fights without incurring a charge. I'm generally against stealing, but it seems to be kind of a racket that the fight fans have to pay this much to enjoy the sport. Uh... NBA fans don't have to pay $60 every time they want to watch LeBron play, and he seems to be doing better financially than probably the entire UFC roster combined. Yeah, I think that those two things have a connection, that if people who are paying up front for your service are finding, you know what, I'm giving you money just to access this as a subscriber, and then premium prices on top of that to access the very best stuff, and you can't even guarantee me that it will work smoothly then I think a lot of people might be more inclined to think, you know what, fuck it. I wasn't really, I I didn't feel great about the prospect of stealing the pay-per-view either because I view it as stealing or because it seemed not worth it. But if the paid version doesn't work well, then why wouldn't I try the free version that may not work well also, but at least doesn't cost me $60 every time. I mean, I think a lot of people are going to make that calculation. To me, like, Maybe this will die out as we get more and more used to this being the new reality. It's still just annoying at times when you're like, so this is my only option for buying the pay-per-view. Like, I can't just buy it through my TV anymore and not have to worry about whether the Wi-Fi is working well. Because even when it's working, you're watching a fight, and in the course of one round, the stream quality can go from like crystal clear to just watching two fuzzy shapes. Yeah. Like you're trying to watch scrambled porn in early 90s. I have no idea what you mean. You know exactly what I mean. And that's your what only... What is that? Is that a foot? <laughs> that's your only choice. It's not like 
they, before it was like, oh, you could buy it through the internet or you could buy it through a cable provider and everything. It's just like the UFC figured out, oh, we can make more money if we cut the cable providers out. Now everybody has to do it this way. And if the, the quality is having consistent problems, then people are going to definitely make some changes into their viewing and purchasing behavior. That's only reasonable. Yeah, I am also generally against stealing and especially working in this industry. I don't feel like I can really uh, stream a pay-per-view for free. Uh, but for consumers, like, I guess I understand that that temptation is there. And like you said, especially if the product is going to become a little bit more, uh, you know, hard to count on as we move forward, you would think they would probably get the, that straightened out that they would probably do everything they can to make the stream work as, as well as possible, just because in theory, there's a ton of money riding on that. Uh, but I also wonder if your partner is ESPN, doesn't it seem like they should be able to put the pay-per-view on like uh terrestrial television like that ESPN could do a uh a pay-per-view thing or do they just not have the the infrastructure for that i would like to think that like the worldwide leader could probably put your pay-per-view on ESPN pay-per-view TV but maybe not yeah i don't know it's somebody asked about this in the athletic mailbag today about and we've talked about it before about putting a big fight on regular ESPN and i'd still really like to see how that does just because like like when the UFC first signed that deal with Fox and we put the heavyweight title on Fox yeah. and it was a huge success. Yeah. Like still, I think the most watched hour of live MMA in the United States got nearly like peaked at like nearly 9 million viewers, I believe. And then never did it again. Yeah. That to me seems like, like now you're on ESPN. How awesome would it be if it was like, hey, we got a light heavyweight title? Like, yeah. forego the money once. You're doing pretty well with the money anyway. Maybe look a little further down the road and be like, if we skip out on the payday this one time, you know, you pay the fighter, give him a guaranteed thing so he doesn't have to have uh, his money tied to pay-per-view points. You put it on big ESPN and maybe you actually make some new fans. No, I agree. And can you imagine, in theory, how badly they would kill it if they did like a Friday night hour-long broadcast on ESPN that had two fights on it, like a, a setup fight and then a championship fight. Yeah. Or even if you just did like three three-rounders and you did like almost no downtime, just like fast as hell pacing, assuming, you know, you don't get a stoppage in like 50 seconds or whatever, which yeah. can always happen. But that also I mean, might not be... happen that heavyweight fight. Right. Yeah. It might not be the worst thing if, if you're doing a live broadcast. Like, uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I don't understand why they don't do more of that stuff. It seems like, especially in terms of like growing the brand or, or, you know, spurring some additional interest, like you could do a lot worse than throwing an Israel Adesanya fight on television or, you know, throwing a, uh, can you imagine if Wiley Zhang and, uh, you want to get Jay Chick had been on TV? Shit. Shit. Dude, be the, like the old school thing with people texting each other, turn on the TV, like Forrest Griffin, Stephen Bonner, like Dana White always likes to talk about. Well, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have questions, comments, concerns that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, go ahead and sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we are not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one.
Okay, Ben, we're going to start off round number one with this piece of mail from Kieran Byrne, who writes, Not since watching Griffin Bonner 1 in bed, in a, oh, in a one-bed apartment in Queens a lifetime ago, drinking beers and texting my friends to tune into the fight, have I had that same feeling of unbridled elation, my racing heart, my, my head in my hands with each strike and uh, turn in the action, a feeling of pure passion and raw emotion, deep sense of pride, just to share a species with these two warriors, these superhuman-like beings who imp- epitomize everything a martial artist can and most likely hopes to be. This was uh, Zhang Wiley versus Joanna Jacek, so godlike they've become, uh, even Chad won't butcher their names. I don't know if I would put that out there. And in a uh, somewhat strange and, infitti- and fitting twist, I watched the fight on Sunday instead of Saturday with my six-year-old son, in parentheses, my new life, and this was my version of texting my friends, sharing my excitement and adulation as he shared his own enthusiasm. Dare I say, our bond grew deeper. Uh, no question on this, I'm sure you'll get to it on one of the rounds, but just a statement. Holy shit. Holy shit. Indeed. Yeah. So, uh, Zhang Wiley and, uh, Joanna Yajajic. I don't even know what to say about this fight other than a, it was awesome. And B, it really was a testament to like the toughness, both the skill and tough, some toughness of both of these fighters that they even stuck this thing out for 25 minutes, ending obviously in a split decision win, uh, for the champion, Zhang Wiley, although we can talk about what we thought about the decision maybe in a couple minutes. But especially for Joanna Jacek to even soldier on, not just soldier on, but be as competitive as she was down the stretch and really, you know, push the champion and try to uh, to turn this thing her way with her damn head swelling up like a Klingon in the front of it and like possibly a broken nose toward the end and just the just accepting the unbelievable power shots from Zhang Wiley and essentially... Looking like it didn't even phase you. The thing that was amazing to me was that from like the second round on, pretty much, by the end of each round, you'd think, well, this can't go too much longer. Like, especially Zhang Wiley, she would look by the end of a round not only beaten up, but also super tired and, you know, had to be carried back to her corner at one point by one of her coaches. And which... I don't know if she had to be carried. He just seemed to take that upon himself to do it, which maybe is not a great idea optics-wise for the judges. And I was wondering, is that shit legal? Can he go out there and, like, pick his fighter up and carry her back to the corner? Because that doesn't seem... It seems like the athletic commission would have some rules about that. I don't know if I've ever seen anything in the unified rules that says, like, that you have to make it back to the corner under your own power. Right. Well, yeah, but, like, what if it will, and like, what if it was boxing? Like, what if your, your fight, or I guess MMA would be the same. Like, what if your fighter got stunned in the last seconds and they're out there stumbling around and you go out there and, like, uh, throw your head under their under their arm and carry them back to the, to I mean, the stool? I'm pretty sure we've seen that, that exact scenario. But, it, so, that was the amazing thing to me was, see, by the end of each round, how beaten up they both were, how exhausted they both looked. And they'd go back to their corner and you'd see them sitting there. Like, especially there were moments where Wiley Zhang is sitting there or Zhang Wiley. Is that where we're doing? Are we doing Zhang Wiley? I believe, yeah, it's Zhang Wiley. Okay. Where she's sitting there on her stool and the look on her face is not one that seems super eager to get up and go do this again. And then 60 seconds later, it's time to start the new round and she comes out there. Throwing bombs all over again. Especially at the end of the fight in the fifth round where it seemed like uh, she was done like dinner there toward the end. And then fifth round, she comes out, arguably wins it. Just like she's there every single step of the way. And I kind of think what 
Yoania Jacek was planning on in this fight would be that Zhang Weili would slow down over the course of the 25 minutes. And, you know, that happened a little bit, but certainly not to the extent that, like, uh, Yoannia Jacek was able to go out there and take it from her. And that I thought was very impressive. Well, yeah, and Yoannia Jacek fought a great fight like yeah. all the way up until the end. I mean, she she definitely did not have the power advantage that, that Zhang Weili had. And you could tell at times where it was just like she would land – a pretty good combination. You know, she'd go in there with three-punch combination, finish with an inside leg kick, and you're like, okay, she's looking pretty sharp. And then every time Zhang Weili would throw a right hand, it was like she she threw it fairly confident that it was going to be the last punch of the fight. Yeah. Over and over again. Or that, that she'd come out with that left hook at the end of the combinations that just kept catching Yuan and Jaychik. And you could definitely see that she had the ability to land one strike that was going to be super significant at any time. And Yuani and Jacek didn't quite have that. Like she had to rely on being the crisper fighter and being a little bit more active and also mixing it up a little more. And I think especially when you get into a close fight like that, where like even if the judges have the punch stats, the strike stats in front of them, there were several rounds where they're just even. Yeah. Like just landing the exact same number of significant strikes, which is pretty rare. And when you're in such an even fight like that and you're relying on a variety of strikes, like to the head, the legs, the body, all that kind of stuff, I think that the judges don't give you as much credit for that. The person who is targeting the other person's head and clearly doing damage to that as it changes shape over the course of the fight. Yeah, the person who is pounding your skull into a different shape. Yeah. That's likely getting more credit from the judges. The judges see that. They can't not know. And I wonder at the same time, like that's a little bit – I don't know. That's a little bit – uh, unfortunate as far as I'm concerned, especially in MMA where like, and not that I'm trying to make the argument that Yoannia Jacek should have won this fight. I thought it was so close. It could have gone either way, but like, I think you should get credit for going out there and like doing what she does and throwing like four punch combos and then ending with a low kick. Yeah. To me, that's impressive. Yeah. But it's also, I can understand how if you're trying to decide who won a close round yeah. and one person looks different, at the end of the round than they did when they came in there. Especially when it's all happening so fast. Yeah. And you're going, okay, I think maybe that person did not win this round because their head has been pummeled into a different form. And now for Zhang Li, we've seen her beat arguably the strawweight division's most fearsome puncher in Jessica Andrade in her last fight to win the title. And now she's defeated, although very closely, very narrowly, the strawweight division's best technician in Ioana Jacek, and in this case, done it over the course of 25 minutes where it was fast and furious, basically all the way through. It was, I mean, I don't know that I, that I expected this fight to be so competitive. So I think in one instance, you could say Zhang Weili looks more vulnerable, but in another instance, it kind of made me wonder like, damn, who's going to beat her now that she is defeated, like uh, kind of like the best of both worlds in that division. Yeah. The, and it made me wonder, are we going to end up doing it again, brother, here? Ordinarily, we'd be like, run this back. But I think right now we're like, let's make sure everyone's safe. Yeah. And like has some time to recover. Give everybody six months off to just sit on a beach and stare at the water while their heads return to normal size. And then we'll talk about it. Because you got, uh, you know, Rose Namajunas and, and Jessica Andrade is going to do it at what, the UFC 249, I think. And so you got to think whoever comes out of that one is going to be looking at a potential title shot, but this fight was so, so close. And one thing that even if you don't think 
or even if you think that, that Jane Wiley rightly got the decision victory and that there wasn't a big question about it and that she deserved to win that fight, you got to step back and give Yoanny and Jacek some credit. Because as we talked about before, she's fallen a little bit from grace in the eyes of MMA fans, went from being kind of a cult favorite to being somebody that kind of a, an object of mockery at times. And she's brought a lot of it on herself. Some of the, the missteps in just public, like it doesn't, you don't get people on your side making coronavirus jokes about your Chinese opponent beforehand. And also some of the things that she said about previous opponents, the way that she likes to try to get into your head that can also sometimes just seem like you're just being mean. You're just, just being a jerk. Yeah. And uh, people didn't care for that. You look though at some of the best fights that women's MMA in the UFC has seen and especially in this division. I think you got this one, probably the, the best women's MMA fight of all time. Yeah. One of the best UFC title fights of all time. And the previous one of the best, uh, especially women's title fights I've ever seen, was that rematch that Yohanna and Jacek had with Rose Namajunas yeah. at UFC 223. Like, even though she has come out on the losing end of some of those fights, Yohanna and Jacek is a necessary element in both of those. You need somebody special in there to give you this kind of a fight. I agree. I felt a little bad like last week on the show and maybe uh, on Wednesday and Friday as well. We talked about whether or not this was Yohanna Jacek's last chance sort of to win a UFC title. And we had uh, taken some mail from people, I think, who kind of were starting to put Yohanna Jacek in the same category as Uriah Faber or Frankie Edgar, that being a fighter where the UFC seems like, all right, you got one win. Go ahead and, and take a title shot. Uh, but in the wake of this fight, I kind of feel like give Joanna Yajajic as many damn title fights as she can earn because this was incredible. Yeah. And yet at the same time, you come out of a fight like this, do you wonder what you leave behind? Yeah. Yeah. No, this is one where both people could be different after it's over. Yeah. You know what else is remarkable about the finish here? Co-Main Event Podcast Movie Club tiebreaker. That's right. Zhang Wiley representing There Will Be Blood barely edging out Joanna Jacek's Knives Out as the next uh, film to watch for the Comedy Event Podcast Movie Club podcast. Is that on Wednesday? Coming up this Wednesday. So if you're not a member of the CME Patreon, you better rectify that. Go over to patreon.com slash event. Join at any level. We got stuff happening for $1 patrons, $5 patrons, and $10 patrons. To experience the movie club, you're going to need to be a top-tier patron, but fun shit abounds over at the Co-Main Event Podcast Patreon. So uh, we'll be watching There Will Be Blood on Wednesday. Yeah. Let's get to it. However, because it was such a close fight, and I went back, I, I watched the fight without the commentary and scored it for uh, a column on The Athletic, and my rewatch, I scored it narrowly for Yuani and Jacek. I thought Knives Out got robbed. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to lie to you. And so I also have watched Knives Out in the past week. Okay. What I will be doing is I'm gonna we're gonna show up we're gonna discuss there will be blood I may occasionally make a knives out reference and you're just gonna have to deal with that Wow okay that's big time just saying let's do are you fucking kidding me and then we'll move on to round number two Ben this week I think both of our are you fucking kidding me are translator translator related In, interpreter yeah my are you fucking kidding me goes out to Zhang Wiley's interpreter slash translator for forgetting how to translate. <laughs> at the end of this fight. He was excited. He was so excited. He apparently forgot that he had one job. <laughs> to the point where Joe Rogan had to tell him to get it together. I mean, great, one of the greatest fights in UFC history, greatest women's MMA fight in the UFC probably in history, would have liked to hear from Zhang Wiley a little bit more 
prudently, a little bit more expediently than the translator was able to do it. You fucking kidding me? Sometimes you just get so excited. I'm just so excited. My are you fucking kidding me? But the interpreter for the main one of the participants in the main event, you saw Yoel Romero show up to the post-fight press conference afterwards. He's got his interpreter there. And they're asking him questions about Israel Adesanya. And he starts answering in Spanish. And you notice even if you don't speak Spanish, he keeps saying something about Africa and about Africans in the in the answer. And then when he's finally done talking, he looks over at his interpreter. And his interpreter picks up the mic like he's about to start and then kind of like puts it down and looks over at UL like, are you sure? Do you really want me to, to translate this one for you? And UL is like, tell him, tell him. And then the guy heaves an audible sigh of defeat. <sighs> Just like, okay, I guess here's the, the point when my job as interpreter leads to me being forced to say racist things on someone else's behalf. And then he explains that Yuel Romero had just uh, made a remark about how he should have incorporated into his training the fact that Israel Adesanya is uh, d- being a descendant of Africa, uh, where they produce many great runners, would mean that in this fight he was up against a great runner and he should have taken that into account. And you could just hear the, the interpreter just like having to do this and being like, you know what? I never thought this was going to be part of the job. You fucking kidding me? You're fucking kidding when me? When your interpreter looks at you like, I think this may be a bad idea. And then you you urge him to continue anyway. And then he heaves a sigh. That's when you know you probably have messed up. Yeah. Are you fucking kidding me? That looks going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Jeff, for round two, we're going to start here with this email from Mr. Burrito Bowl. Very important burrito bowl magnate. Well-known co-main event podcast emailer. What are we to make of UL Romero? A lot of fighters are weird, but he's an enigma in so many facets that it's hard to fully give each of his character traits their due. 43 and ripped like a G.I. Joe? Yep. Crazy athletic, even by UFC standards. Mm Mm-hmm. Refuses to engage for minutes at a time. Yeah. Thoughts on life that seem contrary to reality? Yes. Khabib level of wrestling and absolutely refuses to use it? That's him. What's happening with that man? Now, this is a great question leading into our discussion of Israel Adesanya versus Yoel Romero. Because as anyone who listens to this show knows or is a a member of our Patreon, we were hyped for Israel Adesanya versus Yoel Romero. Two of the most wonderfully weird fighters in the UFC about to put their scrap on. Yoel Romero is out here doing backflips during the stare down, does a flipping back somersault handspring in the cage on his way out there. And then the fight starts. And Yoel Romero comes out of his corner and just stands stock still with his hands up, not just his hands, like his his arms covering his whole head. Yeah. <laughs> just standing there. It's wonderful. I, I mean, 
I know you're trying to work a strategy here, right? Like you were trying to get Israel Adesanya to come after you so you can throw the big left hand. Yep. And he does do that a couple times here. Hits Israel Adesanya once or twice with it. But that is not enough to carry you through a 25-minute championship fight in the UFC. And by the time this thing was over and it was late at night and we had already watched the wonder, the wondrous performance of Zhang Wiley and Joanna Yajajic, this was a letdown. Yeah. Well, I... The especially the beginning of this fight made me wonder what the strategy discussions were like in the Romero camp. Like where they're like, okay, yeah, at American Top Team, where normally like you have an amazing game plan. Like some of the best coaches, one of the best camps in the world, some of the best coaches in the world. Yoanni Ajaychik comes like, from American Top Team. The like, okay, we want Israel to to have be forced to come in after you. Like we want him to just have to attack straight on, and then that's when you're going to counter, and that's when you're going to catch him. So. uh Go out. We want you to go out there, do as little as possible. Just stay still and make sure you're ready for when he comes in. Like don't don't go after him. Don't don't even move your feet too much. Just make sure that we are a stationary target, and that therefore he will be kind of like shamed into having to come right after you. Which is such a especially we talk at times about the weird fallacy of you got to go out there and really beat the champ to take the belt, right? If you're the challenger, you got to really go out there and take it to the champ. And then to see a challenger go out there and be like, nope, I'm going to stand very still and hope that he comes after me. And then in this way, I will be able to catch him, which to me seemed like maybe just a a bad answer to a real problem for you all, Romero, which is you're going out there against this Adesanya, who's got great movement. And if you are the one trying to track him down all the time, you probably feel like you're not going to be able to catch him. Or at least you're not going to be able to catch him under your terms. He's just he's going to be too quick. He manages distance really well. He moves his feet really well. You know, you're not just going to do the thing that you can do to some people where I'll just keep advancing, he'll keep retreating, and then once I see him get close to the fence and I know he's got nowhere else left to go, then I'll charge in on him. That's not going to work against Israel Adesanya. And so you got to find some other way to get him into your range. But it seems like their answer was, do nothing, and he'll solve the problem for you. Yeah. But then they didn't have a plan B, as in, what happens if he doesn't? Yeah. The uh, Someone's was a Twitter post that someone put up saying that they had a clip from the fight where Adesanya was kind of jumping back and forth, and Romero was doing that weird dancing thing that he did, and they were like, this is what it looks like when you and your buddy are trying to figure <laughs> yes. out the controllers. That's exactly <laughs> what it looks like. Yeah, we was like, do you agree to leave each other alone while you figure out what the buttons do? Yeah. Uh, and for Yoel Romero, this is a strange strategy considering, number one, that he came into this title fight on the heels of back-to-back losses and was really only here because Israel Adesanya wanted to fight him. And Yoel Romero's previous three fights were the knockout win over Luke Rockhold, which was awesome, the split decision loss to Robert Whitaker, which a lot of people thought Romero won, but he missed weight, and but that was an awesome fight. And then the Paulo Costa-Yoel Romero fight, which was amazingly awesome. So to me, very strange for Yoel Romero at 42 years old and what is probably his last UFC championship opportunity. I would say certainly his last, given the way this thing played out, to go out there and approach it this way. Just kind of inexplicable to me. And it makes me wonder a little bit, just to circle back to the American top team discussion where they obviously have great coaches and great strategists and the people from there have great game plans watching Yoel Romero also deal with all of his media responsibilities during this week, where you could tell like at some times, and maybe it was because he was having a tough weight cut, but sometimes it seemed like he was kind of done with the bullshit 
it made me wonder all the way around, like, maybe there's only so much you can do with Yoel Romero. Maybe Yoel Romero is just going to show up and do Yoel Romero, and, like, that's kind of going to be what you get. Well, there's good and bad that comes with that, as we've seen. Yes, there is. Sometimes he is a delightfully entertaining weirdo, and other times just a vexing weirdo. And you don't always know which one you're going to get. Maybe you can't have one without the other. I was surprised at how many people seem to think Yoel Romero won this fight. I mean, Yoel Romero's going to think he won the fight because, yeah. sure, of course he is. But how many other people would say, like, online afterwards, would claim online to have believed that Yoel Romero rightfully deserved the, deserved the decision there? It was a weirdly close fight just because of how it played out and how little action there was. Uh, so I was... I was afraid that the decision could go the other way because, and I felt very relieved when Israel Adesanya was announced as the victor because can you imagine? Yeah, how unsatisfying it would be. For and them. having to do it again. Yeah. We would have to do it again if Yoel Romero won this fight. And also, now, now I'm getting a little ethereal here because I don't necessarily know you should be allowed to score fights this way, but like, can you imagine uh, rewarding this performance? Being like, Yoel Romero did the right thing here and is now the champion of the world because he refused to do anything. Yeah. Well, it is the when you get a fight like this, it's always a little bit weird and frustrating to see then both fighters blame the other guy for not doing enough. Yeah. Well, that's one of the questions I wanted to ask here as we discuss this. Like, do you think any of the blame for this fa- this fight falls on Israel Adesanya? Yeah, some of it. I, but I would say less than half. I agree with that. Mostly here, I think you've got to th- throw it at the feet of Yoel Romero. I'll give Israel Adesanya 30 to 40% of the blame. And it, the rest goes to Yoel Romero. But because if, we, we used to have the same conversation when Anderson Silva was during the uninspired period of his title reign, right? Where it would be like, hey, this fight is not – nothing's really happening in this fight, but it's because the other guy's not doing enough. He, I need him to come and do some stuff so that I can do my stuff to him in response. But then the other guy's going, yeah, no, I know that's what you want to do. That's why I'm not, I'm not doing it. Like I'm going to wait for you to do some stuff so that I can do my stuff to you. And the re- result is we both just end up standing there and staring at each other, which is not too satisfying. And like when you have that kind of situation – it does have to be, to some extent, both people's faults. But I can also understand Israel Asani explaining afterwards where he was like, he clearly just wanted me to come straight in on him, and that's when he was going to catch me with the left hand, and he did. And like when I kind of got frustrated with what was happening and I came straight in, then he countered and he caught him with that hard left hand, and then you can understand him being like, okay, let's not do too much of that anymore. Like That's not the way to go about this. And instead trying to just stay outside of the range and chip away at him, just not a whole lot of fun to watch. Yeah. And if you're Israel Adesanya, you're probably hoping like, well, he's going to pretty quickly realize he has to do more because he can't win this way. And then he doesn't. Yeah. He thinks he can win that way. Just completely obstinate on the part of Yoel Romero. I do wonder if this performance has any effect on the star power of Israel Adesanya. It's amazing to me how the fight changed the narrative of this event a little bit for me, just because leading up to it, it was kind of about Israel Adesanya's first chance to to like really solidify himself as an up and coming superstar for the UFC. Uh, you know, choosing to have this fight, a dangerous fight against Yoel Romero, and then if he was able to do something impressive, I think it really would have helped his case. The other thing, the opposite thing, happened in this fight. Like the fight itself was painstakingly boring, especially considering it came right at the end of a very long event that happened late at night. 
I wonder if this fight will have any negative impact on the popularity of Israel Adesanya. If people were like tuning in, you know, like we've said about Conor McGregor a couple times before, like if you bought into the myth of Conor McGregor and then the only times you tuned in to watch him fight were watching him lose to Floyd Mayweather and then watching him lose to Habib Nurmagomedov, does that affect your perception of him? I wonder the same thing about Israel Adesanya. If you had like seen this kind of like fun loving sales pitch that ESPN and the UFC did for him, like he's very interesting. He's, he's this uh, up and coming star. And then you tune in and you get this very, very boring fight. I wonder if you would now think twice before you went back for another Israel Adesanya yeah, fight. maybe. I think there'll be some of that. But I also think if you match up Israel Adesanya versus Snacks Costa, who is going to bring the heat early on, and that's what he's known for, is just going to throw every punch with 100% power and fight every fight like it might be broken up at any time, and he's scared, and he wants to go ahead and finish you before the, the bouncer can get in here. I, don't, I think... It's not going to be too hard to make the sales pitch that this one is going to be different than that one. Yeah. All right. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back. Round number three. back events coming up this weekend from the two largest mixed martial arts promoters in America. On Friday night, you're going to get Bellator 241 from Uncasville, Connecticut over there at the Mohegan Sun Casino. The featherweight Grand Prix rolls on in this one with two bouts, one of which, and as we have said before, I like that Bellator does this, uh, Patricio Pitbull, the champion, going to put his 145-pound strap on the line as part of the tournament against Pedro Carvalho. And then, of course, you also get Daniel Weichel against Emmanuel Sanchez, another uh, fight in the bracket. Uh, the night after that, on ESPN+, Plus, you're going to get uh, Kevin Lee versus Charles Oliveira coming to you from uh, Brasilia, Brazil. So lots of MMA on tap. This weekend, let's start with the Bellator card here because I think there's a couple interesting things to talk about. Uh, number one featherweight tournament, Patricio Pitbull against Pedro Carvalho, Daniel Weichel against Emmanuel Sanchez. I believe that uh, the winners of those two fights will meet in the semifinals. So uh, even though AJ McKee, I believe, just announced he has to have surgery, doesn't know if he's had surgery. Right? Oh, he had surgery, but he doesn't know if he's going to be able to fight. Darian Caldwell in June. Yeah, they wanted him to fight in June. I think he said, told Josh Gross uh, that he had surgery at the end of January and was still kind of limping around. My favorite part of that Q&A that he did with Josh Gross is him saying how he was sparring three weeks after surgery even though he wasn't supposed to be doing anything. And Josh was like, wait a minute. Like, are you – that doesn't sound like a good idea. And he was like, uh – I plead the fifth, man. I'm not saying anything. And he's like, but you already said it. <laughs> There's nothing left to plead the fifth on, man. You said the thing. But yeah, assuming that he does not re-injure himself and that he is able to make that, I mean, still pretty quick turnaround. Uh, that one would go down in June. Already, I mean, like, I really hope that he is able to stay in the tournament one way or another because yeah. he is one of the most exciting parts of it. But again, we've talked about this before. You put anything in a tournament and it instantly becomes more interesting, yeah. especially when you have like this is one of the divisions where you actually have a whole lot of talent. Some of it even like homegrown talent if you're Bellator. The closer this thing gets to completion and actually 
seeming like it may have a chance of holding together, the more pumped I get for the whole thing. No, I agree. And especially when you look at a fight card, fight card like Bellator 241, where you might ordinarily be inclined to look at it and be like, oh, ho-hum. Yeah, right? we're back in Uncasville. Yeah. But if you're on the Bellator roster, you know you're going to end up in Uncasville sometimes. The very structure of the tournament and the fact that Patricio Pitbull is putting the title on the line against Pedro Carvalho and that the winner of these two fights is going to fight in the semifinals, that automatically brings a little bit more intrigue and spice to this Bellator card than if it was just, you know, a bunch of fights that didn't have any organization. Yeah. But of course, you know, we're going to have Bellator and Uncasville. We're also going to throw Paul Daly on there. Uh, Nick Newell coming back here since we're fighting kind of his neck of the woods. So Bellator is going to put him back on the card. Uh, your boy Matt Matreon is going to step in here to Late fight Honey Marks. Yeah. Let's talk about what's going on with Josh Barnett here. Obviously, he's been trying to make his Bellator debut for a while now. It was supposed to go down at Bellator 235, uh, but Be- uh, Barnett pulled out like just an hour before the fight due to illness. And then, so they rebooked it for Bellator 241. And now, about a week ago, uh, it was announced that Barnett is officially off this card as well because he had failed a medical test of some kind. We assume drug test related, but who knows at this point with Josh Barnett. Uh, and so Matt Mitrione going to step in to fight Hani Marks in a heavyweight bout. Just This just seems like we're getting close to, I'm just going to go do pro wrestling if you're Josh Barnett. Yeah. Yeah, because how many failed Bellator debut kind of stuff can you make here? For yeah, I would think this many. Do you, do I you, think you get two. You, oh, you know they'll try it again. Well, yeah, but if it happens again, that's your third strike. Even with Scotty Cokes, who you know has a soft spot in his heart for guys like Josh Barnett. Yeah. Uh, you also got uh, Leslie Smith on this one. Uh, moving over there to Bellator. Baby Slice, mm-hmm. he's on this one. So, One of, I believe, 16 fights that we got because Bellator's court can't just show up and just give you a reasonable number of fights. Well, it's yeah, and it's like kind of a surprisingly uh, interesting Bellator card, I think. And then, of course, you look over at Saturday night, UFC on ESPN plus 28, fight night 170. Your main event here, as I said, Kevin Lee against Charles Oliveira. But also, and nothing wrong with that. I don't mean no. to say there's anything wrong with that. That's a good fight. You also get some uh, co-main event, co-main event podcast favorites on here. Damian Maya, who I know you're going to tune in to watch Gilbert fight Gilbert Burns. You fucking know I am. At welterweight. You also got Johnny Walker on this card. Like like low-key Johnny Walker yeah, slipping onto this. Yeah, show up there against Nikita Krulov. That's, so that's a good one. You got your boy Easy Dos Santos on here as well. Uh, Juicy Formiga and Brandon Moreno. That's a good one at Flyweight. Yeah, so I mean, there's, uh, you know, that's not even to mention uh, Hanato Moikano was on this thing. So, like, uh, you got some interesting stuff happening on this on this fight night event. The thing, though, for me that is still tough, like, this one feels like one of those fight night events where you shouldn't even really have a main event. We should just agree that one fight just has to be last because that's the way just chronology works. Because it doesn't, it's a good overall fight card, but it's not like, well, okay, I, I don't care about these other guys, but I'm going to sit through it just to get to Kevin Lee versus Charles Oliveira. It feels like that could be mixed in at any point, like yeah. anywhere on the card, which for a fight night event on ESPN+, Plus, I think is mostly fine, except the problem is with divisions like lightweight right now, where you got two guys who are really good lightweights, who have been good established fighters for a long time. They're also going to go out there, probably give you a really good competitive, good show at lightweight, and regardless of who wins and how, you're going to be nowhere near 
the top of the division or even like in the conversation of the musical chairs that is happening there in the top of the division of everybody yeah. trying to position themselves for a title fight just because of the way the that division has shaken out where I got, even the people who are on long winning streaks who are clearly have established themselves as top contenders are still having to get out there and argue that they deserve uh, to be considered for a title shot and it's nowhere near a given. So everybody else is kind of going, I don't know, I guess we're just fighting for the paycheck and hoping it all works out somehow. If you had told me without looking that Charles Oliveira came into this fight on a six fight win streak, I would tell you you were bullshitting me, but it's true. Six fights in a row, dating back to June 2018 now for Charles Oliveira, including four perform five performance of the night bonuses. The only fight that he didn't get a performance of the night bonus, his TKO win against Nick Lentz from May of last year. So, you know, you go out there against Nick Lentz, you're probably not getting a bonus. <laughs> what Just because how Nick Lentz fights, right? Like he's yeah, gonna, and yet he's gonna still, do Nick Lentz. Like you said, six fight winning streak. And finds himself in the UFC rankings at number 13. Yeah. He's behind Gregor Gillespie, who Kevin Lee just knocked out. That's right. Kevin Lee, who, of course, had uh, he lost three of his last four prior to his meeting with Gregor Gillespie at UFC 244. Totally rehabilitates himself, though, with a two minute and 47 second head kick highlight reel knockout of the best fisherman in MMA. And now rolls into this uh, main event fight with Charles Oliveira. Yeah. So that's interesting. You got a lot of stuff happening here. Like, I don't know if you were, so I was like, Ben, you got to watch one of these and not watch the other. Which would you do the UFC? Well, shit. I mean, I I mean, they're both on streaming because your Bellator is on DAZN. I want to see how that tournament plays out. But I also, I got a feeling we're in for some good, weird fun with Johnny Walker and Nikita Kroos. I was just going to say the same thing. Like that to me is almost like the most interesting fight here to see Johnny Walker come back after his loss and and see if he can get back on track against uh, Nikki Thrills. I also think if it goes more than a round, I'd be surprised. Oh, yeah. These guys are are coming for for uh, those heads. They're going to... All of them. All the heads. Coming for all the heads. All the heads that exist. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? Or I'm sorry, Just Saying Stuff. And then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your Just Saying Stuff? Chad, I know you heard about this incident that happened with the Korean zombie and Brian Ortega. Yeah. Brian Ortega out here slapping fools, allegedly. Slapping. uh, More interpreter-involved stuff, actually. When you get down to it, he attacks Jay Park musician and interpreter and friend of the Korean zombie. The Korean zombie gets on Facebook, it seems, and posts this message to Brian Ortega. Last night, you sat 10 meters away from me and Jay Park. For two hours, nothing happened, so I thought everything was fine. But you fucking attacked Jay Park while I went to the bathroom. Jay Park is not a professional fighter, but a musician. You slapped a civilian who merely helped translate. Later on, it was not a, a fight like real men would do. What you have done is the same as a grown-up to beat a child. You should have attacked me. You're such a coward for slapping a musician, not a fighter. Now, I'm just saying. I agree with all that. Yeah, I agree with all the stuff that that the Korean zombie is saying here. I appreciate him standing up for his friend. I also feel like if it were me. Yeah, you might want to have edited this before it went out. Well, and if you're the interpreter, you think you would have, you'd be the guy. Yeah. You'd be the go-to guy yeah. uh, when he wants to post something in English on the Facebook page. I would just, I would be like, hey, I, let's keep the general tone of this message. A of, there's a lot of good stuff here. There's, it's 90% usable, as is. 
maybe let's just let's not compare me to a child. Yeah, that's that's where I would be at. And also maybe like one mention of me being a musician is probably enough. Like we don't need to keep belaboring the point as if like because I'm a musician, I obviously could not ever hope to defend myself the way a real man would do. Right. I mean, like, he's maybe, just a normal person. Yeah, like, no, it doesn't have anything to do with him being a musician. Maybe we, maybe we just, you know, we trust the audience to make some of those connections on their own without us explicitly saying it. I'm just saying, maybe, maybe a time or two more through the typewriter, this whole statement will really be exactly where we want it to be. Yeah. I'm just saying. That's just, saying. just as how maybe I would feel in that situation. Ben, this week I'm just saying, if you got kind of a nice welterweight prospect you're trying to bring along, maybe he rolls into an event on the heels of a three-fight win streak. It's a lot to like about him. Looks good getting off the bus. Mm-hmm. Hits hard as hell. You're thinking, he could be a guy. Let's see what we can do with him. Why on earth would you call Neil Magny? Why would you be like, hey, Li Jingliang, how about you go out there and fight Neil fucking Magny? Neil Magny cashes as an underdog here in this fight against Li Jingliang, Ben, for the ninth time in his career. (laughs) So I guess I'm just saying, don't underestimate Neil Magny. Why would you put your guy out there against Neil Magny? He's going to win. That's what Neil Magny does. Maybe I think Neil Magny's finally washed up. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's Neil Magny, man. I mean, even always if, take the plus money with Neil Magny. Even if you beat Neil Magny, you might not look that great no. doing it. Yeah, just saying. Just saying. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Thanks everybody for joining us. Uh, we'll be back on Wednesday, of course, with the live chat. Assuming everyone's health holds out and we can be in the same uh, room together. Uh, we'll, we'll also have the There Will Be Blood movie club episode that same day, which I understand Ben is going to ruin by also talking about Knives Out. That is correct. Okay, so that'll be fun for you guys to tune in. And, of course, Friday we'll be back with the Power Hour leading up to this weekend where we got dueling, Bellator, and UFC events. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You know what I really enjoy about Knives Out is that you see guy Daniel Craig you see him show up there and you're like, oh, it's James Bond. Uh, I'm expecting the James Bond voice. And he comes out there with this southern gentleman accent. Oh, wow, he's doing some acting. Throwing you for a loop. A lot of people are doing, a lot of people acting their asses off the knives out. I mean, I do want to watch it. I am going to watch it. I just don't know if I will have time to watch all of their Will Be Blood and Knives Out. You won't get all the references. Probably just some of all the references. The thing about There Will Be Blood that, uh, I recall having seen it, seen it when it came out, that it was a marathon. Now I'm like, oh, it's an hour shorter than the Irishman. How about that? So, Everything yeah. takes on a new perspective. Nice little bite-sized chunk. There will be blood. <laughs>